It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. I like to watch courtroom dramas, things like Law and Order and A Few Good Men. And, you know, I just find trials, especially done well in movies, very compelling. You have the defendant and the alleged crime, the prosecution trying to prove their guilt. And then you have the defense trying to prove the innocence of the person. And one of the main things that draws you into the the trial is who's on trial. You know, if it's some no-name person, they're not famous, you don't know who they are, uh, you probably really aren't uh, caring so much about what's going on, but if it is someone who's famous, someone with lots of power, someone that uh, everyone knows about, then all of a sudden, you know, people are much more interested in the trial. I remember back in 1995, I was a senior in high school, uh, and then O.J. Simpson was on trial for those two horrible murders, and I remember everybody was just glued to the TV watching that. People were staying home from work. You know, it went on for months, but it was like this trial that everyone wanted to see. You know, this morning, we're going to continue looking at the most important trial in all of the history of mankind. And the reason it's the most important trial is because it deals with the most important person to ever walk the face of the earth. And this is the trial of Jesus where sinful men tried and convicted the perfect Son of God. You know, Jesus' trial would have made a captivating courtroom drama because you know it's full of three things. Corruption, complexity, and compromise. It was full of corruption because the accusations against Jesus were a lie, the witnesses gave false testimony, and the trial was illegal. It was full of complexity because it had six different stages to it. And this is something that's important for us to know because John's gospel actually only deals with three of the six stages of Jesus' trial, so it's important to recognize that there's more to this trial than we see here in John's gospel. We have three stages in the Jewish courts, and then we have three stages in the Gentile courts. Well, John gives us the details about the first stage of the trial when Jesus was brought before Annas. Remember, Annas was the high priest, but he was removed from that position by the Romans, and the Jews didn't feel like the Romans had the authority to do that, so they still looked at Annas as their high priest, and that's the first person that Jesus is taken to. And then John tells us Annas sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, and that's all he says, and that's the start of the second stage of Jesus' trial, but John does not record any of the details of that second stage. And the most important thing about the second stage of Jesus' trial is that it happened at night, it happened in the high priest's home, both of which were illegal according to Jewish law. It had all sorts of false witnesses, none of which could agree on something that Jesus had done. And so after all the false witnesses, they still don't have something in which to condemn Jesus to death. And so the high priest, Caiaphas, he asked Jesus if he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and Jesus says, yes, I am. 
And so Caiaphas says, what further need do we have for witnesses? Crucify him or kill him. You know, we're sentencing him to death for claiming to be God. Now, because this night trial in Caiaphas' house was illegal, they added a third stage to the trial of Jesus, and it really was only for the purpose of show, for the purpose of trying to make this legal, because you couldn't have a trial at night. So they go in the morning to the official place where they should have had the trial to begin with, in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders who should have been the ones trying Jesus. And so they they try to make it all official. And it's funny that uh, the high priest Caiaphas, at this point, asks the same question really to Jesus, uh, asking him if he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus says again, yes. And then Caiaphas says, once again, what further testimony do we need? Now, the interesting thing about that statement is they didn't even have any testimony at that trial. They were just knowing, hey, this is the only question we need to ask. Everyone's going to hear Jesus say that he claims to be God. And so we're going to condemn him for blasphemy. And so Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to death for blasphemy. And then the trial goes from the Jewish court to the Gentile court. And the first thing that we see in this stage of the Gentile court is that Jesus is brought before Pilate, and John does record that for us, and that is the section of Jesus' trial that we're going to look at this morning. But as um, John doesn't record, there's a fifth stage. And as Jesus and Pilate, and Pilate's hearing the accusations that the religious leaders are giving against Jesus, he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, that he spent a bunch of time in Galilee. And he says, oh, Galilee, that's Herod, King Herod's territory. So send Jesus to Herod. Let Herod deal with this. And so Jesus goes to Herod. That's the fifth stage of this trial. And Jesus doesn't say a word to Herod. He's completely silent. Herod just ridicules and makes fun of Jesus and then he sends Jesus back to Pilate without convicting him of anything. And so the sixth and final stage of Jesus' trial is back in front of Pilate, and John records that for us, and that's the stage that we'll be looking at next week. And so you realize here that there's a lot to Jesus' trial. First, it's full of corruption because of all these lies and false testimonies, and the trial was illegal. It's full of complexity because it has these six stages, three in the Jewish courts, three in the Roman courts, and also it's full of compromise because those seeking to try Jesus compromise so much in seeking to put him to death. The religious leaders compromise the law. They're illegally trying Jesus. All this stuff that they're doing is illegal. And we're also going to see that Pontius Pilate, now the one who's overseeing this Gentile court, is also going to compromise things in order to put Jesus to death. So this morning we're going to look at this fourth stage in Jesus' trial, which is the beginning of this Gentile trial before Pontius Pilate. And as we look at this fourth stage, we're going to see some important things that we're going to learn about the religious leaders. We're going to learn some things uh, about Pontius Pilate, about Jesus and his kingdom, and about an individual named Barabbas. And then we're going to finish this morning taking time just to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross by taking communion together. And so let's see what we can learn this morning, starting in John chapter 18, verse 28 says this. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. 
So after the official morning trial in front of the Sanhedrin where they said Jesus is guilty of blasphemy and they sentence him to death, they lead Jesus from Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin there at the official trial to the Praetorium early in the morning. Now, the Praetorium was the headquarters of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. It was also known as the Antonia Fortress. It was a a Roman fortress. It's where the majority of the Roman soldiers stayed and lived. And as you can see from this picture, it was right next to the court of the temple. It has these four large towers that was purposeful because they wanted to be able to have soldiers looking over and seeing what was happening in the city so they could keep the peace. And this was the place that Pontius Pilate held court. It's where he would judge people. It's where he conducted his business. And so when the religious leaders need Pontius Pilate, they need to go to the, the Praetorium in order to find him. But notice what we're told about the religious leaders as they get to the praetorium. We're told this, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So when the religious leaders arrive at the praetorium, at this place where a Gentile, Pontius Pilate, and many other Gentile Roman soldiers are, notice they're not willing to go into this building. And the reason why is lest they should be defiled that they might eat the Passover. You see, they felt like if we go into this Gentile place, it is going to defile us, and then we won't be able to eat the Passover tonight. Now, I want you to note something here, and it's the amazing level of hypocrisy among the religious leaders. I mean, they just had an illegal trial. They broke many of their laws in that trial. They've come to this praetorium in order to put an innocent man to death. And notice they're not worried about how those horrible actions have defiled them. But they are concerned about going into the praetorium of the Roman governor because it's full of Gentiles who might defile them. So they've already been defiled in the worst possible way. They're seeking to kill the Son of God, but they're not bothered by this. They are bothered by this outward defilement from Gentiles, which shows their great hypocrisy. Now, something I want you to note here is the true defilement and law-breaking from these religious leaders, it took place in secret. Notice that all the things that were illegal, the things that were uh, done improperly, it took place at night, and it took place in the high priest's home where the crowds couldn't see. But now in the daytime, now when they're in the middle of Jerusalem, right next to the temple, now when everyone can see, oh, all of a sudden we want to obey the law. All of a sudden we want to look like we are, are doing everything that we can to not be defiled. Last night we didn't care about being defiled. Last night we didn't care about breaking the law when no one could see. But now when everyone sees, oh yes, we're definitely concerned about being defiled and going into a, a, a Gentile facility. And see, this is the big problem with the religious leaders, something that Jesus brought up over and over against them, is that they're a bunch of hypocrites. They wanted to be seen as spiritual, as law-abiding men, and they always put on this outward show in front of people, oh, look how spiritual we are, but in reality, they were very big, sinful men, law-breaking men, but they didn't want anyone to see that. You know, this religious hypocrisy in the religious leaders, is something that each one of us can often be tempted to do. 
I'm sure that we all have a desire within us to be seen as more spiritual than we really are, as better people than we actually are, to be seen as having things more together than we really do. And sometimes we come to church and we just put on a show. We're not willing to be real. We're not willing to, you know, just, you know, kind of share what's really going on. We kind of want to put on a smile, put on a show, put on a mask, hoping to be seen as something that maybe we're really not. But when no one's watching, we're willing to indulge in things that defile us. But when we come to church among other Christians, we pretend like we take sin very seriously. We act like we don't struggle with it. And the bottom line is that's hypocrisy. And I'm sure most of us struggle with that or have at least dealt with that in our life. And it's something that God does not want from us. You know, if you're struggling in sin, you shouldn't be coming to church and pretending that you're not. This is a place where you have other brothers and sisters in Christ where you can come to for prayer, where you can come to for accountability, where you can come to for help. It's a place to be open and honest so that we can overcome sin, not hide sin. So the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, but they're not willing to go into the praetorium because the praetorium is full of Gentiles and they don't want to be defiled. Well, let's see what happens because now Pilate's going to have to come out to them in verses 29 through 32. Pilate then went out to them and they said, and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. So Pilate comes out to the religious leaders and he gets right to the points. I'm sure he's a bit annoyed. It's early in the morning. They're not willing to come into him. He's forced to come out to them. And so he just asks the question, hey, what accusation do you bring against this man. Now, it's important to note that one of Pilate's roles there as governor was that he was meant to judge lawbreakers and make sure they were punished for their crime. And so they're bringing someone who he assumes is a lawbreaker, someone who has committed some crime. And so he says, okay, what accusation do you bring against this man? What crime, what law has he broken so that I can turn around and judge him for it? You see, Pilate most likely makes two assumptions here. The first assumption is that there has to be some kind of crime that Jesus had committed, and he wants to know what that crime is. And the second assumption is that the religious leaders want Pilate to judge the crime of Jesus. But both those assumptions would actually be wrong. Jesus did not commit any crime ever in his entire life, and the religious leaders don't want Pilate to judge Jesus. They want Pilate just to accept the judgment that they already placed upon Jesus and condemn Jesus to death. Pilate, you don't need to judge anything. We've already done that. All we need from you is to be the executioner. Sentence him to death. That's the only role that we need from you. And we see this through the response to Pilate's question of what accusation do you bring against Jesus? They answer and say, if he were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him up to you. Well, notice the question is, what accusation do you bring against Jesus? And they don't answer that question. They don't give him an accusation. They say, oh, Pilate, if Jesus wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him here. I mean, you know us better than that. I mean, I mean, surely you understand that we wouldn't have brought some innocent guy to you. You don't need to know what's wrong. You don't need what crime he's committed. Just trust us. He's guilty. He's a bad man. And we only brought him here because of that reality. 
You see, I think they're hoping that Pilate is just going to be willing to execute Jesus just on their say-so. They brought him, and they're thinking, you know, Pilate's just going to do what we want. And they probably have some reason to believe that. One, because history tells us that Pilate was quite a brutal individual. But remember, the night before this, when Jesus was arrested, guess who arrested him? There was a large Roman garrison, a bunch of Roman soldiers. Guess what? The only way that garrison goes is if Pilate gives the okay. So the religious leaders the night before would have had to come to Pilate and say, hey, we have this dangerous guy that we're going to need this whole Roman garrison to help arrest. And now the next morning they show up at his place. They're not willing to go in. He has to get out early in the morning and go talk to them. It's like, all right, what are you accusing this guy of that I sent this Roman garrison the night before to get? And they're thinking, ah, oh, you don't need to know that. He's an evil guy. Just convict him. Sentence him to death, Pilate. They assume Pilate's going to do that, but they're actually wrong. Pilate is not willing to just sentence Jesus to death without having some accusation against Jesus. And since they don't give an accusation, notice how Pilate responds. He says, fine, you take him and judge him according to your laws. What Pilate's saying is, hey, if you don't want to tell me what Jesus is accused of, then you guys can just go deal with it yourself. You guys can go judge him according to your laws. If you don't need me to judge him, why are you here? Why are you wasting my time? Why are you dealing with me in all of this? But they say to Pilate something that reveals why they bring Jesus to Pilate to begin with. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now this brings up an important question that we should ask ourselves as we come to this stage in Jesus' trial. And that is, why did the religious leaders take Jesus to Pilate at all? I mean, we've already seen three stages of their trial, and in those stages, they found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, and they convicted him to death. So why didn't they kill him? Why go to Pilate? Why don't they just kill Jesus themselves? Well, here's the reason. They had to take Jesus before Pilate because they did not have the legal right to execute criminals on their own. In A.D. Uh, 7, the Roman government took that right away from Israel. And so they no longer could execute people. They had to only allow Rome to convict and execute people. And so only a Roman court, led by a Roman governor, could do that. And so that's why they come before Pilate, because he is the Roman governor, and he has the power of the Roman court. And they're only there for one reason. We want the death penalty. We want to put Jesus to death. We can't do it ourselves because you guys took that right from us. And so we are asking you, Pilate, to do that for us. Now, something important to note here is that there's a little more to this conversation than what John records for us. And Luke gives us something that's important to note because first they say, oh, you Pilate, you don't need to know the accusation. Trust us, he's an evil guy. But they realize that doesn't work. Pilate's not willing to accept the fact that he's just an evil guy because we say so. He needs some kind of accusation. And so Luke's gospel tells us they actually bring an accusation against Jesus after they try to get away with not bringing an accusation against Jesus. And so Luke tells us this in Luke 23, 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Well, wait a second. At the end of the Jewish trial, the accusation against Jesus was he was guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. And now as they come to the Gentile trial in front of Pilate, they completely change the charge 
of what they accused Jesus of doing, which is illegal. But notice now there's a whole different three charges that they do. And so why change the charge? Why not just say, hey, Pilate, he's guilty of blasphemy. He claimed to be God. That's why we want him dead. Well, the reason they don't bring that charge is because they knew Pilate wouldn't care about that charge. Pilate wasn't Jewish. He didn't have the Jewish law. He didn't care about that. Rome had all sorts of uh, gods. He'd probably say, yeah, we got thousands of gods. What's another one? I don't care if this man believes he's God. He's probably just crazy. Pilate wouldn't have taken this seriously. And so they blatantly lie, and they bring up other charges that they know that Pilate would take serious, and so these are the charges that they level against Jesus, three of them. First, ultimately, Jesus is a revolutionary. We found this fellow perverting the nation. Well, this was not true. Second, Jesus incited people not to pay taxes to Caesar. Well, that would be something a Roman governor would take very seriously, but once again, this wasn't true. Remember when the religious leaders asked Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus' response was, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus is saying clearly, yes, you should pay your taxes to Caesar. So Jesus was not guilty of that. And the third accusation was that Jesus claimed to be a king. Now it's true that Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, but not in the way that the, the Jewish religious leaders are accusing him of here. See, the implication of what they're trying to bring out is that Jesus is a king in opposition to Rome. He's wanting, they're wanting Pilate to be afraid of this. And now understand, in the, the day that it is, we have Passover. There's about a million more Jews in Jerusalem than there normally would be. The Jews hated the Romans. They hated the oppression of the Romans. There was always this thought of there could be an uprising against Rome. And Pilate's role was to make sure that never happened. And so if Jesus truly is a self-proclaimed king or a person that someone, a group of or many people that would follow and, and come against Rome, all of a sudden when there's a million more Jews who could definitely overthrow the, you know, thousands of Roman soldiers that are there, Pilate has to take that very serious. Like, this could be a big problem, not only for Rome, but for me personally. And so this would have been the most serious of all the accusations that they bring against Jesus. And so they make up these three crimes against Jesus, ultimately hoping that this is going to cause Pilate to want to put Jesus to death. And so Pilate is standing on the outside there of the praetorium, speaking to the religious leaders, and now he knows why they're there. He is, they want him to put Jesus to death. He's heard the three charges. Jesus is a revolutionary. He incites people not to pay taxes, and he claims to be a king in opposition to Caesar. And that's really the one accusation Pilate's most concerned about, so he wants to investigate that one the most. I want some more information about Jesus claiming to be king. And so he's going to have a private conversation with Jesus in the praetorium, starting in verses 33 through 38. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own Nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I did not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? 
Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So Pilate's outside of the praetorium. He's there with the religious leaders and Jesus, and he goes back into the praetorium knowing that the Jewish religious leaders are not going to join him in there, and he calls Jesus into there as well. And so they have this private conversation where, where Pilate's now going to follow up on this accusation that Jesus is a king. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is something that it was important to him because the implication is, are you ultimately a king that's going to be against Caesar and cause me problems? Now, this was Pilate's first look at Jesus, the man that the religious leaders claim was so dangerous, the man that had to have this whole Roman garrison go to arrest him the night before. And so as Pilate lays eyes on him, I'm sure he expected something far different than what he saw. And his question for Jesus, are you the king of the Jews, reveals that he probably had some doubts about the accusations that the religious leaders were bringing against Jesus. Well, Jesus responds to this question by saying, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Jesus wants to know, if Pilate personally wants to know whether or not Jesus is the king of the Jews, or is Pilate just asking this on behalf of the religious leaders who have told him? And the reason this is an important question is because the answer would be different depending on where his question came from. You see, if Pilate asked the question because he personally wanted to know, then his question would have most likely been uh, because, hey, are you a political king? who is coming against Rome. Because if Pilate's asking it on behalf of himself, that's what he'd be concerned about. All I want to know is, are you a danger to Rome? Are you a danger to me? So are you a political king that's coming against Caesar? And the answer to that question would be, no, I'm absolutely not. I'm not a political king. I have not come here to make war or to overthrow Rome. I haven't done that at all. Now, if Pilate asked the question for the religious leaders, the question would have meant, are you the messianic king of Israel promised in the Old Testament? And if that's the question, then the answer would be, yes. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the promised king of the Jews, and I've come to save all people from their sins. So Jesus asked Pilate, is this question coming from you, Pilate, or is it coming ultimately from the religious leaders? And Pilate really isn't too happy with that question and has quite a contemptuous reply. He says, am I a Jew? You know, what Pilate's saying is, hey, you know, what do I care if you're a king of a Jew? I'm no Jew. I don't care about that at all. You know, what I care about is why these religious leaders have brought you here and what you're guilty of. And that's why he says, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? I could care less whether you're a king of the Jews I want to know what you're guilty of. Why have you been brought here before me? Well, Jesus knows that Pilate's main concern is that Jesus is somehow a threat to Rome. And so Jesus answers the question, really just kind of dealing with that. I want you to understand, I am no threat. I'm not the threat that you think that I am or that the religious leaders claim me to be. And so he says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. 
So Jesus reveals two very important things to Pilate about his kingdom, his kingship, that hopefully will help Pilate understand, you know what, I'm not a threat to you, I'm not a threat to Caesar, I'm not a threat to Rome. First, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. In contrast to the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Jesus originates in heaven, not on this earth. You see, Jesus wants Pilate to understand his kingdom is not a rival kingdom that he has recently established there in Israel. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that was established in heaven, not here on this earth. Second, Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. In contrast, once again, to the kingdoms of this world, Jesus is saying that his kingdom is a kingdom of peace, not a kingdom of war. You see, if Jesus had established an earthly kingdom that the desire was to overthrow Rome, his servants would be fighting right now. There's no way they would have allowed him to be arrested by the religious leaders and then taken to Pilate. He's saying, hey, if I had a kingdom like that, don't you think my servants would be fighting? Well, why would I be standing here before you without some big uproar and all sorts of people coming against you for having me right now? See, Jesus didn't come to make war. He came to make peace. He came to make peace between God and man. Well, now that Jesus has spoken about his kingdom is different than the earthly kingdom that Pilate would have been afraid of, Pilate says then, are you a king then? And Jesus answers, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus ultimately answers Pilate's question. He says, okay, well, you're talking about a kingdom. Does that mean you're a king? Jesus says, yes, I am a king. But let me clarify once again, I'm not the type of king that you need to be afraid of. I'm not the king who has come to establish an earthly kingdom and make war against Caesar and Rome. I'm the king of truth, and I've come to uh, deliver and reveal the truth of God to the world. That's the kind of king I am. That's the reason that I have come. I'm the king of truth to bring the truth of God to this earth. I have not come to make war with the world, with Rome, with Caesar, and he wants Pilate to understand that. But Pilate's response to this is, what is truth? And last week, we spent a good amount of detailed time looking at this great question, what is truth, this topic of truth. And so I won't give it any more time this morning. If you missed that message, you can go listen to it online. But notice here, this private conversation between Jesus and Pilate enables Pilate now to kind of look at Jesus and look at the accusations against Jesus and come to a conclusion. Is Jesus guilty of the crime in which the religious leaders claim he's guilty of? And he comes to his own conclusion. He walks back outside to the religious leaders and notice what he tells them. I find no fault in him at all. (laughs) Now the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate for one reason. They want Pilate to put him to death. So this is not what they wanted to hear. All they wanted to hear was Pilate come out and say, yep, he's guilty, let's kill him. But he comes out and says, I find no fault in Jesus at all. And notice here what Pilate's saying. Pilate's not just saying that Jesus is not guilty of a crime deserving of death. Pilate takes it farther than that. He's saying Jesus is completely innocent. It's not like, well, he's guilty of this crime, but not he doesn't deserve death. He's like, he's not guilty of anything. I don't find fault in him at all. 
But as you can imagine, Pilate understands, this is not what the religious leaders want to hear, and I'm going to have some problems with them now that I don't find Jesus guilty as they want me to. And so Pilate comes up with a plan. How can I get myself out of this situation? Here's an innocent man, and here's the religious leaders who want me to kill him. Well, well, how do I get away from doing that? And so he comes up with a plan that he thinks will make it possible for him to release Jesus and at the same time make the religious leaders in the crowd happy. And notice what his plan is in verses 39 and 40. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release you, the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate thinks he's found the solution to the problem. I don't want to kill Jesus. I think he's innocent. The religious leaders want me to kill Jesus, and so I have this quandary, you know, how do I make them happy and not kill Jesus at the same time? Well, during Passover, they had this custom where Pilate, as a gesture of gratitude or just a nice gesture to the the Jews, he would release a criminal. So on Passover, one criminal would be released back to the Jews and would not have to suffer the consequences of his crime. And so Pilate's saying, great, I already do this, and so I will just release to them Jesus. And they'll be happy. I mean, if he's truly the king of the Jews, there's going to be plenty of people who love him, and so the crowd's going to want him. And so when I say I'll release Jesus, they'll accept that, they'll be happy, and I don't have to kill and condemn someone who is innocent. Now, John just gives a couple verses on this. Mark's gospel gets a little more detail for us. And so let's read what Mark's gospel says about this encounter between uh, Pilate, the religious leader, and this man named Barabbas. Mark 15, 6 through 15 says this. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one man named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he has always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd, so that they should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. So Mark tells us that the multitude begins to ask Pilate to do what Pilate has done every year in this custom that he has to release a prisoner. And so, hey, release a prisoner to us again this year, Pilate. And notice what Mark reveals that Pilate knew. I mean, Pilate dealt with the Jews a lot. He, he was a guy who kind of read people well. And we're told, for Pilate knew that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. Pilate recognized, you know what, the accusations they're bringing against Jesus, they're false. The reason they want Jesus dead is because they're envious of Jesus. I see that. And so all this other nonsense, all these other accusations, those aren't true or real. Jesus is innocent. They only want him dead because they're envious of him. He understood that, which made him all the more want to just release Jesus and not do anything to him. 
So Pilate's come up with this plan. I'll release Jesus with this custom that I have. It's going to solve my problem. They're going to accept Jesus, and I will now be released from the burden of having to condemn him to death. So he poses a question. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Thinking surely they're going to say, yes, we love the king of the Jews. We love Jesus. Release him. But notice what we're told. The chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. So there were many people who loved Jesus, who loved what he did, but the chief priests, the religious leaders, they stir up the crowd. They make sure that the answer to that question is not Jesus, but instead Barabbas. So when Pilate asks the question, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? The crowd says, no. Release to us Barabbas instead. Now Mark and John's gospel tell us that Barabbas was a murderer. He was a rebel or a traitor and a robber. So the crowd, that they make a choice between Barabbas, the murderer, the rebel, the robber, versus Jesus, the sinless Son of God. And unfortunately, they choose the sinful man over the sinless Son of God. And sadly, people today are still making this horrible choice. Choosing Barabbas, choosing the sinful versus the sinless Jesus. David Guzik wrote this, People today still reject Jesus and choose another. Their Barabbas might be lust, it might be intoxication, it might be self and the comforts of life. This mad choice is every day made while men prefer the lust of their flesh before the lives of their souls. You know, everyone is faced with the most important choice they will ever make. Will I choose Jesus, the sinless Son of God, or will I reject Jesus and choose something else? And the reason this choice is so important is because what you choose will impact all eternity. The only way that your sins can be forgiven, the only way that you can spend all eternity in heaven, is if you choose Jesus. Choose the sinless Son of God who died on the cross for your sins. That's the only way that you receive salvation. That's the only way that you receive heaven. Any other choice, which is a choice to reject Jesus, no matter what it is that you're choosing, that's a choice that's going to impact your eternity as well. Because the Bible tells us then your sins will not be dealt with and you'll spend eternity in hell. So the crowd makes clear who they want Pilate to release. Now Pilate has a real important choice to make. An important decision to make. Do I release Jesus who I know is innocent? Or do I release Barabbas who I know is guilty of murder, of robbery, of rebellion? And it seems to be a quite an obvious decision. Uh, you release the innocent and you condemn the guilty. But it's not so easy for Pilate. And the reason it's a hard decision for Pilate is not to, because he doesn't know which is right and wrong, which is guilty and innocent. The problem that Pilate has is he's concerned very much with pleasing the crowd. Notice Pilate basically asks the crowd, you decide for me. Because notice the question he poses, what then do you want me to do with Jesus? Wait a second, aren't you the Roman governor? Aren't you the guy who's supposed to be making decisions here? Oh, okay, crowd, what do you want me to do? What decision do you want me to make concerning Jesus? You guys decide the fate of the king of the Jews. And so the crowd does respond. Crucify him. 
That's not what Pilate wanted to hear. Pilate's hoping, well, well, surely you want him to be released. Crucify him. And Pilate asked a very important question. Why? What evil has he done to deserve the horrible death of crucifixion? And the crowd cries out more. Crucify him. Pilate poses this great question for the crowd, and the crowd doesn't have an answer. Why should we crucify this innocent man? Why should we put Jesus to death? And all they basically just say is, just do it. Just do it. Crucify him. Crucify him. We don't have a reason. Well, notice the decision Pilate makes and the reason why in verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Pilate violates his own conscience and his own desire. He already testified, I find no fault in Jesus. And the reason Pilate did that is because he wanted to gratify the crowd. I want to please the crowd. I know this man's innocent. I know sentencing him to death is wrong. I know releasing Barabbas instead of releasing him is wrong. But you know what? I don't care about any of that. I want to gratify. I want to please the crowd. And if the crowd wants an innocent man dead, then an innocent man dead is what they're going to get. And I think it's a huge warning for us. Our decisions should always be made to please God, not to please the crowd. You know, Pilate made a choice between conscience and convenience. He made a choice between the right way and the easy way. He made a choice between the voice of Jesus and the voice of the crowd. And because Pilate chose to follow convenience and the easy way and the voice of the crowd, he made the worst decision of his entire life to execute the innocent, sinless Son of God. But you know what? We too make horrible choices when we're led by convenience over conscience, when we're led by the easy way over the hard way, when we're led by the voice of the crowd and the culture over the voice of Jesus and His Word. If you want to make good choices, make sure you're led by the voice of Jesus, led by the voice of the Word of God, led by the right things, led by your conscience, not by the things that Pilate was led by. Now something very important to note here is that Jesus literally took the place of Barabbas. We're told that Barabbas was caught with a couple other guys. They're robbers. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. Robbers. These three people and these three crosses, they were there for them. Barabbas was meant to be on the cross. That cross was for him. And Jesus literally took his place literally took the cross that was built for Barabbas to hang on. So if anyone knew what it's meant that Jesus died in my place, it should be Barabbas. He was a murderer, a traitor, and a robber. He deserved to be crucified. But he was set free. And Jesus was crucified in his place. And you know what? That should just be a powerful picture for all of us because the good news is Jesus didn't just take the place of Barabbas. He took the place for you. He took the place for me on the cross. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, You and I may fairly take our stand by the side of Barabbas. We have robbed God of His glory. 
We have been rebellious traitors against the government of heaven. And if he who hates his brother be a murderer, we also have been guilty of that sin. Jesus takes the place of Barabbas, and it's a wonderful picture of what he did for you and me, because just like Barabbas, we are guilty sinners who deserved judgment. But Jesus took our place, took our sin, took our judgment, so that we could be set free like Barabbas was. So that we could be free and forgiven and have salvation and a relationship with God. And I want us to close this morning taking some time to remember this wonderful reality that Jesus took our place. And as we do that, I just want to just think about how we are like Barabbas. How we come with our sin and the only way that we can be forgiven is if Jesus takes the place of us. If He dies in our place, if He takes our judgment, if He takes our sin. And so as we look at what Jesus does here, literally taking the cross that was Barabbas's, but He's literally taking the cross that should have been yours and should have been mine. As we remember the cross, remember what Jesus has spared us from. And to help prepare us for this time of communion, to remind us that we are like Barabbas, to remind us of what wonderful thing Jesus has done for us, I want to show a video I showed once before, a little over a year ago. It's from a sermon about Barabbas. It focuses on how Jesus took our place. And really one of the things it just encourages us to do is just to give Jesus our sin. And as we remember Jesus' sacrifice and as we come to Him, if there's unconfessed sin in your life, Realize He dealt with it. Just confess it. Give it to Him. Don't hold on to it. He wants to free you. If you confess your sin, the Bible says, He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so we're going to watch this video, and then I'm going to come up and we'll partake of communion together.